with us, a first-time visitor. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. and get to do uh, a good amount of the teaching, proclamation of God's Word on Sundays. It's my pleasure to serve you this morning, Lord willing, effectively from Revelation. So you can be turning there. We'll project if you don't have a Bible with you. you can, uh, it'll be projected on the screen. But the best thing you can do is, is have your own Bible open in front of you and follow along. There is a, uh, you know, I think the folks in the other room probably don't know we started. Yeah, they couldn't hear the bell. We'll give them, a, we'll give them a minute to come on in. There we go. The bell is very effective, and I, I find myself always tempted to, to think of it like to say something like. Okay, Musketeers, that's the magic bell, and you know what that means. Come on in. But it helps us. It helps us uh, get ready. <laughs> well, we are in Revelation. We're in Revelation nine through twenty, and so you can be turning there um, as we continue in this series. There is a wonderful story related to what we're going to look at today in Second Kings six, the story of the prophet Elisha with his servant and. The prophet Elisha, in the, the time that he served back in the Old Testament, uh, God used him. He would, he would get insight from God on many things. And, and uh, he had insight on the movements of the Syrian army, and he would tell people what was going to happen to basically thwart the Syrian army. They got so frustrated with Elisha that they actually sent the army after him. And they came to the city of Dothan where he was, and they surrounded the city. This is a city on a little, a little hill in a valley surrounded by mountains, and they surrounded Dothan, um, and they were there with their chariots and horses, and, and um, in the morning, Elisha woke up, actually his servant I think got up first, there was a young man, and he looked out and he saw the Syrian army encamped outside the city, and he, and he thought, oh no, he, he freaked out basically, oh no, what's going to happen? You know, the Syrian army's out there, we're, we're done for it now. And Elisha, at the, by this time, is awake, and, and and here's what he says, and he prays. He prays that the servant would see what actually is going on, that his eyes would be opened. Well, God answers the prayer, and the servant's eyes are open, and he sees that not only is the Syrian army encamped around the city of Dothan, but surrounding on the mountains are the armies of God, these chariots and horses of fire around all of Dothan, and they are far greater than the Syrian army. And so his perspective uh, is changed by that. This army of God is outside and they're ready to act. And in the story, you can read it, they do act actually. They had, uh, strike the Syrian army with blindness and then the army has to be led about because they're all blind all of a sudden. God delivers uh, Elisha and his servant from the Syrian army. It's no problem to him at all. Wonderful story. Um, and I think that you and I are often like Elisha's servant. We look out at life we look at our circumstances and we look at our challenges and we can be overwhelmed by them. We can feel overwhelmed that these things are far greater than anything I could deal with. And, and we can come under fear and anxiety, even despair as we look at those, those different situations. Or we can do the other alternative is, is we run to a, another alternative source to rescue us, a false god, an idol of some sort. So so we either despair and are discouraged or we run to try to find relief in something like addictions or, or gr 
greed or pleasure or wealth or whatever it might be. That's what life is like for many of us at many points in time. We are like Elisha's servant and we need our eyes open to see the real situation. And the book of Revelation is such a a revelation. It's an answer to Elisha's prayer for for us. It's It's a revealing of what's really going on. And when we get what's really going on from the book of Revelation, it changes our perspective. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at verses 9-20 through 20 as it reveals what's going on. This is what I think nine, verses 9-20 through 20 teach us. I'll tell you ahead of time. It's this, that we must know that the glorious Christ is present in His church. We must know the glorious Christ is present in His church to endure the trials and triumphs of the Christian life. This section, this paragraph in Revelation will teach us these things. It will, I trust, open our eyes to see the chariots and horses of fire that are there, Christ Himself. So let's pray, and we'll dig into His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, how much we need to have our eyes open to see what's really going on. Lord, we define ourselves so often, even every day, by our circumstances, be they successful or be they failures. And we define ourselves this way, and we live in this world that, that often is very difficult to endure. And we need our eyes open keep from freaking out or to keep from running to idols, Lord. We need to see what's really going on. And so we pray, Lord, would you show us what's really going on right now, even, as we're gathered here? And Lord, would you help me to proclaim and teach your truth and serve you well? And, and Lord, through our time, would, would we be tra- changed, transformed by your word and walk out of here different than we came in? Aware of reality, ultimate reality and then able to endure with you through that. We pray. We look forward to what you'll do in our time. Master, in Christ's name, amen. amen. Please follow along with me, verses 9 through 20. John is writing this letter to seven churches ultimately, and he says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. God's Word from Revelation 1, 9 through 20. So I want to dig into the passage here and learn from this truth that we must know the glorious Christ is present in His church to endure the trials and triumphs of the Christian life. I want to first talk about the trials and triumphs of the Christian life, and we are introduced to those right in verse 1. John introduces himself to his readers, to his listeners, as a brother and partner in the tribulation. Um, he's a brother and partner. It's interesting. This is the Apostle John. This is uh, the one who, he's an apostle. He has great authority, but he communicates himself to the churches that are, re- are receiving this, and really to us, as a brother and partner. He's a brother. He's our brother. He belongs to the family that we belong to. To be a Christian is to be part of God's family through Christ, through the the, the blood of Christ shed on the cross to pay for our sins. We are blood brothers and sisters. We're connected to each other. We're part of a family. And it's wonderful, this family of God, there's no better family. There's no more important family, actually, to be a part of. And you simply become part of the family by turning away from sin and other alternatives of living that aren't in line with the Lord aren't in line with faith. You turn from sin and put your faith in Christ. His blood shed for you on the cross. His resurrection for your justification. And you are welcomed as a brother or sister. And John is a brother, so he's identifying with his readers as a brother. He's just one of us. And he's a partner as well. It's interesting he uses both words. Partner is related to basically the word fellow team member. That might be a better way to translate it. A team member. I'm part of the team. We're on mission together, and I'm your fellow brother, and I'm your fellow team member. And really, uh, it's interesting, that's a message in and of itself. Our identity as the church is really as, as the family of God and the team of God. God has us on mission. We're a family that's on mission. We have a commission, great commission, that we're called to, to make disciples of all nations. And so John identifies himself as brother and partner. But it's interesting, it's brother and partner in what? in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Three terms that are put together. Actually, in the original language, there, are, there is only a definite article for the first part. So the is the definite article, right? So it says the kingdom, it says the tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance, really, in the original language. So it's, it's kind of a, a word that goes together. It's one of those hyphenated words. You know, we have those hyphenated words. Uh, where you put two nouns together. So it, that's really what it is. It's, it's tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. Actually, it's one word for patient endurance in the original language. It, it means patience, but a patience that's a hope-filled pa- patience. It's kind of a, an eager patience. You're looking forward to something. You're enduring. You're waiting for something. And so John says, I'm your brother and partner in this reality of the Christian life that is a combination of tribulation the kingdom, and patience. He just, just one sentence, he started out here in this section, and he said a whole lot already, right, to us about what it is to be a believer. It's to be part of the family. It's to be on mission. It's to live in this reality where there's tribulation, the kingdom, and patience all combined. And this, this point alone is really important. This is why we actually need the rest of this section that we're going to get into, because we live in this reality of these three things combined. 
We live in tribulation. Now, tribulation here uh, can mean trouble or trial. It's not tribulation like the tribulation, capital T, people talk about, but at the very end, right before Christ returns, there'll, there'll be a trouble, there'll be trials that are more pronounced than in the rest of church history. It's not excluding that, but it's saying that it's, John's in it right now, right? So he's saying he, he's a partner and brother in it, so it's obviously not the end time tribulation. It's the, it's the whole church age, small t tribulation. To live as a believer right now is to live in tribulation. It's to live in trials. It's to live in trouble. It's to live in a world that's fallen and broken and separated from God. It's to live as ones who are connected to God, reconciled to God in Christ, at peace with God, secure in that love, forgiven, beloved, destined by grace to one day dwell in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no trial or tribulation, only worship and joy. But to live now between Christ's resurrection and His return is to live in tribulation, to live in trouble. Whatever that might look like, there's all different degrees. It can be everything from just having to, to live in a broken world. It's a broken world. There are weaknesses. There's sin. Our own souls and bodies suffer sickness. There's pain. There's offenses. There's, there's a brokenness. There's a kind of common everyday level of brokenness and tribulation that just comes with being in this world. And it's inescapable. It can be everything from that level to the darkest and vilest oppression and persecution you can imagine. And that goes on too. It's much more common than we know. Our country doesn't see much of it, but much of the other parts of the world, they see a lot of it. To be a Christian in many places in the world means to lose your job, your family, your life, everything. That's all tribulation. John himself is living in tribulation because he says he's on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because he's simply been uh, serving and leading as one who believes in the word of God, that the word of God is true, the ultimate truth. And because of that, he's running contrary to, to the culture. It's the word of God and, and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, it's not just the Word of God like the truth of God, but he's testifying to Jesus. That word uh, is the word witness as well, which is used throughout Revelation. A key theme in Revelation is learning to live as witnesses amidst tribulation. And so John is a witness to, the, to, the, to Jesus. So just by living according to the Word of God and being a witness, that's enough to get him in a lot of trouble. It's enough to get us in lots of trouble as well. We live as family and team members amidst tribulation. That's part of what it is to be a Christian. That's what this is teaching. That's why we need to know the rest of this chapter. The second word is kingdom. We are part, brothers and partners in the tribulation and the kingdom. The tribulation kingdom. The second noun is kingdom. A kingdom is a place where a king reigns. And the king has already come. His name is Jesus. He came and he demonstrated his kingship over all things, over death, over sickness, over, over storms, over hunger, over everything. His, his life and the testimony we have in the gospel is about the signs that demonstrate that he's the king and the king has come. There is a kingdom. He, he reigns now. And those who come to him by faith are included in that kingdom. And as we live in faith and obey him, and, and image him, we extend the kingdom. We extend his reign. 
So this kingdom isn't just a future kingdom. It's a present kingdom. We can see that by in the Gospels, actually. Luke chapter 11, we have a verse to show you. Luke chapter 11, Jesus is speaking uh, to those who would doubt that He is the Messiah, that He's bringing the kingdom. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, I am delivering people from demons, and that's demonstrating the reality that the kingdom has come now. When I can walk in and God's people can walk in and and bring light where there's darkness, deliverance from demons, and freedom, that's the kingdom of God. It's there. It's a reality. Luke chapter 17. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here right now. It's me and my disciples walking in the kingdom. We're, the kingdom's here right now, guys. So the kingdom has already come through Christ's first appearance. It's been inaugurated. It's been started. It gets spread through the work of the church. But the kingdom is not yet complete, right? If the kingdom were complete, there'd be no more tribulation. There'd be no more evil. There'd be no more sickness, no more sin, no more sadness. The fullness of the kingdom we see in the book is more than just what we see now. And so we live as Christians in this tension in the kingdom. The kingdom has come. People do come to know Jesus. People's lives get transformed by the Gospel. There's new life. Families are rescued. Towns and villages are transformed. Whole cultures get changed by the gospel. There's all sorts of kingdom things that go on in this age. But there's also other stuff that goes on. It's not yet. It's not there in its fullness. Our bodies, though we may experience healing, eventually will wear out. We've seen God heal people in our church. We're grateful for it. Our brother Ken Drury got healed of cancer. And God gave him an additional, what, 15 years. It was wonderful. A miraculous healing. They told him he had two months to live. And he got 15 years. God answered prayer. The kingdom came in Ken's life first. Most importantly, that he was reconciled with God through that cancer. God used that cancer to draw him back. To make him realize, you know, I I need the Lord. I'm going to have to face God, the the perfect judge. I want to make sure that I'm reconciled. So he came back. That's the most wonderful aspect of kingdom experience in his life. But then God healed him. That's the kingdom. But then when it was time, 15 years later, God took him. His body wore out. He got cancer, uh, reoccurred, and he died. And he's with the Lord right now. The kingdom has come. It's already and not yet. And and Ken is awaiting the fullness along with us when he gets a new body. And we'll live in the new creation with the Lord forever. So, tribulation, kingdom, they go together. It's already and not yet. And then, the, uh, thus the w- need for the third word, this endurance, this faith-filled patience, this hope. We live as those who live in tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance. That's what brings it all together. Those three go together. And John's writing to, the, to those who live in this. That includes us. Not just his first readers. It's all those who live between Christ's return. Uh, Resurrection and return. We live in this threefold reality. He's a partner and a brother in it. It's important to understand all three have to function. 
Anyone here ever do a, a triathlon? Anyone? Excellent. Wow. I'm impressed. That's great. Uh, I have not. I wish I could, but not at this point in my life. But a triathlon uh, is an event where there are three grueling tests, right? There's the Ironman triathlon. It's kind of the ultimate triathlon that's out there. It's uh, a 2.4-mile swim in the ocean, so the choppy ocean, 2.4 miles. Then you get out of the water, you get on a bike and ride 112 miles on a bike. And then when you're done riding 112 miles, you, you run a full 26.2-mile marathon. That's the Ironman triathlon. It's a daunting competition. There are smaller versions of it. Um, and and the, the training that it takes to, to even just complete it is, is amazing. Uh, it takes typically one to two hours a day of training, and then one uh, on the weekend, a four to seven hour bike ride on the weekend. So imagine, and you're doing that for months before the actual competition. Uh, it's, a, it's a severe test of the body. Uh, they say that after you get off of the bike to go run your marathon, you try, it's like trying to run a marathon on wet noodles. Your legs are basically wet noodles at that point, and you're just trying to somehow run. It's just a grueling test. And the key to being a good triathlete for a triathlon is being strong in all three areas. All three being things that you can do. We as Christians are spiritual triathletes. We must learn to be strong in all of these three aspects that John talks about. We must be strong in understanding that we live in tribulation. That, the, that, that this is a reality. We must learn to live that this world is not our home. And we mustn't set our sights here, ultimately. We must know that, that this is a place of trouble and tribulation. It's not home. It's not our final destination. And we need to be strong in this. If we're weak in this understanding, we will complain and grow frustrated. We will be bewildered and perplexed. Why is this happening to me? Why is this going this way? We'll struggle if we neglect this reality. We live in tribulation. But if you are too strong in this area and not strong in the other areas, you end up being a pessimist. You'll just live with low expectations, just thinking, this is miserable. Let's just try to get by somehow for the next 40 years. And you'll be a pessimist. And you might end up thinking, I'm basically a prisoner in the enemy's world, and I just got to endure and that's not the full truth. You need to be strong also in the kingdom. You need to know that the kingdom has come. That the reign of Christ is here. That God does bring people to know Himself. He's at work throughout the world. There are millions of people coming to know Christ. And indeed, there are cultures being transformed. Families, individuals, wonderful things going on. God heals today. He does these things today. There's great blessings. And we're called to be salt and light. We need to know this. He'll complete His reign soon as well. His reign will come and it will be completed. So we're to live ever eager and hopeful. If we're weak in understanding the kingdom, we will miss opportunities to be part of kingdom work. We will hesitate to share the gospel. We will hesitate to pray for the sick. We will hesitate to take risks for the Lord if we don't understand that the kingdom is already and He's at work. He does heal. He does change lives and transform cultures. He does these things. But if we overemphasize this to the detriment of the other qualities, 
we'll be confused when we face failure or are frustrated. We won't be patient. These all go together. Tribulation, kingdom, and patience together. When we walk in all three, we are, we are strong in the Lord. Now, we need the Lord to do that, and that's what I'm going to get into next. But let me just ask you, how are you in triathlon training? How are you as a spiritual triathlete? How are you doing in this area? Which of the three qualities are strongest for you? Which are weakest? What can you do to strengthen yourself in the area you need to be strengthened in? How can you help others be strengthened? Guys, really as a church, we exist to train triathletes. That's what we do as a church. One of the things we do, among many, we train triathletes, spiritual triathletes. We are here, we gather together so that you can be a spiritual triathlete. You can be strong and understand all three and live in that reality. And so the ministries we offer are aimed at that, really. The things that we offer as a church, Sunday worship, small groups, Bible study, evangelism opportunities, all these things are aimed at your, your triathlon and our triathlon together. So is there some ministry of the church you need to be a part of or serve in to strengthen in one of these three areas? What is God calling you to do to live successfully in this reality of the tribulation in kingdom and patient endurance? That's just the first verse. The passage goes on as John identifies with us in these things and, and reminds us of this reality that we live in this reality to to describe his encounter with the glorious Christ. And so it says that John is uh, caught up in the Spirit. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. So it's Sunday. He's, he's caught up in the power of the Holy Spirit. He hears a trumpet, a loud voice like a trumpet, reminiscent of the trumpet blast from Mount Sinai when God's people met with him on Mount Sinai. There was a loud trumpet blast. And, and so there's this trump, trumpet sound that he hears, and he turns around, and he sees... The voice that was speaking to him, and he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands, and then he sees Jesus here in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. He sees one like a son of man, it says. This is a term used in the Bible. Jesus uses it for himself, the son of man. It's from Daniel uh, chapter 7 and 10, where it speaks of, of the son of man, one who is like a human, but, but more than just a normal human. Uh, he's God's anointed. He's actually God in the flesh. And so John is saying he sees one like a son of man. He means Jesus. A lot of this description here in, in Revelation 1 and much of Revelation comes from the book of Daniel, as we saw last week. And so in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, there are parallel verses, we can show those, that describe, uh, a, that describe God or describe a, uh, a spiritual being, an angel, in Daniel. And it looks just much like Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, it says, As I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So Daniel sees the, the Ancient of Days, God, takes his seat, and his clothing's white as snow, his hair uh, is like pure wool, his throne is fiery flames. So, so he sees God, and, and God looks like how Jesus is described. Daniel chapter 10, there's an encounter with a, an angelic being, and it probably is the pre-incarnate Christ. 
Daniel chapter 10, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Very similar description to what we see in Revelation. Jesus' appearance is like this. And this similarity is intentional. Now, it's important to understand in Revelation the representations of things are for a purpose. And so Jesus is represented. He appears this way. He's communicating to John uh, through his appearance. It doesn't mean that Jesus always looks like this now. He just has white hair and he's got a big sword coming out of his mouth all the time. That's not the point. It's representing things about his character, about his reign, about his rule. There's things that we learn about him from this image that's presented to John. So he sees he's dressed in white linen. He's dressed in white linen, pure and holy. That was the garment of a priest. A priest would dress in white linen and serve before the, uh, the altar in the temple. And Jesus is dressed as a priest. But he has a golden sash around his chest as well. And that's the, what a king would wear. A king would wear a golden sash. So he's a priest and he's a king both together. He's ministering among the seven golden lampstands. He's ministering the presence of God. He's ministering among those seven lampstands. He's tending those lampstands. A, a priest would tend the lampstand. He would keep the oil supply. He would keep them lit. And those lampstands would continue to shine as the priest ministered there. But he's not just a priest. He's also a king. He rules and reigns. He holds in his right hand these seven stars. And I'll talk about that shortly. He acts with authority. He's a priest and he's a king. And he's a glorious one. He shines from head to toe. His, his eyes are like flames of fire. His feet like glowing metal from a fire. A face so bright that it would hurt your eyes to look at. Like the sun shining in its fullness. You can't look at the sun in its fullness. That's, his face is shining with glory. So he's bright. He's glorious. He's this priest and king among the lampstands. And he's got a voice that's like Niagara Falls. It's like the rushing of much water. It's a, this big rumble, this loud noise. That's his voice. And so he's glorious. He's great. He's there among the lampstands, ministering as, as priest and king. But he's a glorious priest and king. He's the glorious Christ. So the picture in, in John, John sees Christ and he's, and he's overwhelmed by his glory. He falls down. He basically passes out. He faints like a dead man at his feet. It's so overwhelming. That's the picture here. That's the reality in, in, in heaven. That's the reality of Christ. And By the way, the sword out of his mouth is the, the Word of God. He has the, the right through his Word to judge. His sword cuts and judges and determines, separates good from evil, right from wrong. His sword is a, a blessing for his people because it vindicates them as they run to Him for mercy and walk in His righteous ways. But for those who rebel, they will be punished by that sword. His Word. His ultimate Word. He will speak and things will be done and they will be done forever. So He rules and reigns. The sword out of His mouth represents that. And so it's this glorious appearance. And John is overwhelmed. Think about that. This is John. John knows Jesus, right? We read, can read earlier in the Gospels that that it says that he was the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved. Not that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, but he had a specially close relationship with John. 
John leans over uh, during the Last Supper, right? Leans over and puts his head on Jesus' chest. They're close. They're close friends. Um, So he knows Jesus. He's close to Jesus. And it's interesting to see what John does when he sees Jesus. He doesn't go lay his head head on his, his chest, right? Hey, Jesus, good to see you again. You know, I'm going to go up and give you a hug. He's freaked out. He's overwhelmed by the glory of what he sees. He falls down like a, a dead man. He's paralyzed with fear at seeing Jesus. And Jesus lays his right hand on John and says, Fear not. And he, this touch restores John. And then Jesus speaks of his authority, his power, and his salvation for John and for all those who would run to him. He, de- he describes who he is. He says, Fear not. Fear not. So there's a, his, hand is, his right hand is on John, touches him, restores him. Fear not. And then dis- de- uh, declares who he is. I am the first and the last. I am the one who rules all of history. I, I was there at the beginning. I'm there at the end. I'm over it all. I am history. We say history will judge us or judge someone. No, Jesus is history. Jesus is the judge. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore. I've died. I've died on the cross for sin. I died, suffered, and died. But now I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I open that door. And I let out all who would, I would choose to let out. All who run to me for mercy and grace. This is who I am. The first and the last. The living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. John, fear not. This is the one who's for you and with you in your tribulation, in kingdom, and patient endurance. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. He's with John. And we needn't fear as we run to Him. Now, He is not gentle Jesus, though. Right? Jesus is gentle. He chooses to be gentle. But this isn't gentle Jesus. This isn't wimpy Jesus. This is Almighty Christ. This is the glorious one. This is the one who rules and reigns. This is the one who determines history. This is the one who will judge all men. All mankind, men and women. He will judge. This is glorious Jesus. Now He's for us if we run to Him. Full of mercy and grace. Faithful. But if we run away from Him and go our own way, He will be the judge of us. It's so good to understand, so important to understand that Jesus is not just the gentle Jesus. We need to understand Him as He is. He's the glorious Christ. He's the victor. He's our captain. He's our hero. He's the one who's overcome. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our priest. He's all these things. This is who He is. And sometimes we can grow too familiar with Jesus. Sometimes we can end up treating Him as just like a nice guy. Another person. But He's so much more than all that. He is the glorious Christ. He wants us to know Him in that. I remember when I was in high school, I had uh, various wrestling coaches. And they all were great coaches um, as far as wrestling goes, teaching us wrestling. But some of the coaches were not like real great wrestlers. Some of them were like maybe just slightly better than us or depending, some of, us, some of them weren't. We could beat them. Um, and sadly, us... I didn't have, and many of us didn't have a whole lot of respect for those guys that were just kind of just a little bit better. But I had one coach, uh, Coach Donovan. He was an Olympic class wrestler. 
and he coached us for a while. And uh, he was just an amazing wrestler. He was this massive guy. He probably was my height or shorter, and he was about this wide. He was so big, I couldn't get, when wrestling move, I couldn't get my arm around him. Like, usually you put your arm about this far around. He was that big. He was just this massive guy. He was an excellent coach. And we never treated Coach Donovan with disrespect. He had our respect. If he said, go do sprints, it was like, yes, sir. And we went out and do sprints. We, we respected him deeply. And that is how we should look at Jesus. Jesus is our captain. He's our hero. He is our brother. He's with us. But He's Almighty Christ. He rules and reigns. The sword comes out of His mouth. He's the first and the last. He's the one who's conquered death. He's the victorious one. He's alive forevermore. This is the one that we follow. Jesus. He is no wimpy Jesus. He is the Almighty Christ. We put our faith in. That's so important to know. Not only is He the Almighty Christ, but He dwells amidst the churches. John is commissioned here by Christ to communicate to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, it lists the churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There are seven churches. Um, but do you know that there, are, there were more than seven churches in that part of Asia Minor? There were at least nine, if not more. So why is Jesus picking seven out of the nine? The other two are going to feel pretty left out, I think, right? Why didn't he mention us? Well, remember, Revelation is full of symbols that represent things. And the number seven is a number that represents completion, perfection, fullness. And so when Jesus addresses the seven churches, and we'll get there later as we get into those chapters, he is addressing actual churches with real situations. And he's addressing those real situations. So they're not fictional. They're real. They're real churches. And so they would have read this and been like, wow, this is exactly what's going on in our church. But they are representative churches. Really, every church throughout time, throughout the world, in the church age, can find themselves at least in one of the seven churches, if not all seven in some way. They represent the whole church. That's seven, right? Completion, perfection, fullness. They are the seven churches. So he's addressing really the whole church. That includes King of Grace as well. This book is meant for us at King of Grace Church. And so he addresses these seven churches. They represent the whole church. And they're represented by seven golden lampstands. And then there are seven stars here. Lampstands are things that were in the temple. And they were used to, to illumine the temple. They represented the presence of God. We learned last week that the relate to the Holy Spirit's presence amidst us. Really, the Holy Spirit would be the fire, the light, at the end of the, can the, the wicks in those lampstands. But the lampstands themselves are the churches. So the fire of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is in the churches. It's, it's the light of the Holy Spirit in the churches, illumining darkness, bringing the presence of God. And so the lampstands represent the churches where the Holy Spirit burns, Jesus is amidst the lampstands. He dwells amidst the lampstands. He lives there. And so He's there. The Spirit of God is in the churches. The, the light illumining the churches. Not just the seven, but all the churches. This is what it is to be a church. And He walks among the lampstands. He tends the lampstands. He keeps the oil there. He keeps them lit. He, he cleans and polishes the lampstands. He wants those lampstands to shine brightly for the Lord. 
And he does that here at King of Grace. He's present here at King of Grace. He's concerned about this lampstand and us shining for him. He tends this lampstand. He is present here by the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the Word of God, He ministers to us as we share the Word, as the Word is proclaimed from the pulpit, but also in everyday life and small groups. Jesus is working to tend the lampstand. When you share the Word with each other, when you pray for each other, that's Christ ministering through you to the church. That's an important thing to understand, that He walks amidst the lampstands, amidst our lampstands. The lampstand called King of Grace Church. And he holds in his right hand seven stars. These seven stars are the angels of the churches. That's a kind of wild thought. There are angels of the churches. And it's interesting in the commentary on Revelation, there are some people who think that the angels are actually pastors. They're like senior pastors of the churches. Uh, the word angel can mean messenger. So they say, well, they're pastors or messengers of sorts, so they must be pastors. The reason they say that is because we'll see in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses the angels about the, as if they were the church itself. It's almost like if you read through at times he's talking to the angel, times he's talking to the church. And there are some of the things he says is you guys are sinning and you need to repent. And so people think, okay, these are angels that aren't sinning, right? They're holy angels. They're not fallen angels. So how can he talk to the angels and say these things? That, that's why they think it can't be angels. It must be just the senior pastors. Well, I don't think they're right. One, because the word angel is used pretty much all the time for angels. <laughs> uh, so the, the word doesn't ever get used else for pa senior pastors. Uh, and, and very, very rarely would be for anything but for angel. That's one of it. Two is that the angels are the representatives of the churches. God does assign angels to churches, it looks like from here. And they represent the church. And the representation of the church is so close that he can address actually the angel and the church simultaneously. doesn't mean the angel is guilty of these things, but the angel is the representative of the church. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture. Angels are assigned. There's Michael is the angel for Israel, the people of God in Israel, right? Um, we see in Daniel. So angels represent churches. Now, this isn't just like a little factoid here. Like, oh, cool, now I know that, it, that our church has an angel. Um, there's a connection with the rest of the book of Revelation. What we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5 is that there's heavenly worship going on before the throne of God. The angels, the, the, the numberless angels and the people of God are before the throne worshiping. And that would include the angels of the seven churches. And that would include the angel of King of Grace Church as well, is in the throne room worshiping God. And there's a connection between throne room worship and heavenly realities and church worship and church realities. That's, that's an amazing truth. He walks among the lampstands, but also there are angels that are representative of the churches, representing the church before the throne of God. And so there's a connection in our worship and what we do with what's going on in heaven. That's both encouraging and sobering, isn't it? It's encouraging when we recognize these things to realize, wow, we're basically we've got a seat in the throne room of God as a church. There's the King of Grace seat where the King of Grace angel sits before the throne of God. And, that, and there's a representative of us there. God cares about this church. He cares what's going on in this church. He's involved in the details of it. He knows what you're doing. 
He knows your, your faith and deeds. He knows when you struggle and stray. He knows it all. And the worship that goes on in heaven is connected to our worship. That's encouraging. When we get together and we sing, even when we sing off-key at, at times, personally, whatever, it's, it's connected to heavenly worship. It's important. It's, in God's sight, it, it's an important reality of Sunday, of, of, of our existence. Our worship is connected to heavenly worship. And He's for us in Christ. He's our captain. He's our hero. He's with us. It's encouraging. It's tremendously encouraging. It's also sobering, isn't it? It's sobering, but wow. So when we come together and worship, there's a connection to heavenly holy worship going on. And Christ dwells here with us. He's present right now. Right now, He's here with us. And there's an angel too. I don't think we need to figure out too much more about the angel, but just to know that there is an angel that represents us before the throne. That's there to care for us, and to watch over us. That's sobering. Church is a holy thing. God dwells here with us. It's serious. This, what we're doing is serious here. It's of heavenly import. It's of eternal import. God takes note of what we're doing. He cares about it. He wants the people who are wholly dependent on Him, devoted to Him, without compromise, without inconsistency, not compromising with the world. And that's what He's going to do in the rest of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, then following, basically call us to integrity, to live in the sober truth that He dwells amidst the lampstands, that He's with us, that we're part of the heavenly, holy worship. We're called to be faithful witnesses in this world of tribulation. He takes that seriously and He wants us to run to Him for grace and mercy and run to Him for holiness. To not compromise with the world. To love the world on His behalf. But to not compromise. There's a sobering aspect to this reality. We are to constantly live aware that Jesus walks among the lampstands. This lampstand. And there's a connection to heavenly worship. You guys are probably aware of the term owner-occupied home. I don't know if you've heard that before. Maybe if you've ever filled out a mortgage, it asks you, is this an owner-occupied home? Actually, your rate, your lending rate on that mortgage will depend on whether you check that box off or not. You will get a better rate if it is owner-occupied because banks are smart, right? Owner-occupied means if you're living there, you have a, a stake in the place. You're going to take care of it because you're living there. You're going to be serious about making your mortgage payments because it's your home. If you don't have a home, you don't have a home, right? And so... The risk associated with loaning you the money if you live in the house is less, and so they can give you a better rate. If you don't live there, there's the possibility that the, the occupants don't really care a whole lot about the home. They might trash the home. They might, you know, you might not make your payment because, hey, I don't live there. So the rate's higher. The fact that it's owner-occupied makes a big difference for the banks, makes a big difference for the home. The fact that King of Grace is owner occupied should make a big difference in how we understand our church. This church is owner-occupied by Jesus Christ Himself. He dwells here in this church. This is His church. He cares about this church. He loves us. He shed His blood for us. He's purchased us for Himself to live in His grace and to walk out His truth. And He calls us and He empowers us for holiness. And when I say 
King of Grace Church, I don't mean the building. The building is part of us. It's, it's where we meet. I mean the people. He cares about this. This is an owner-occupied church. And when we understand what Revelation says, that He dwells, this Almighty Christ dwells in this church, when we recognize this is owner-occupied, doesn't that shift how we think about church? Doesn't it shift our participation? Doesn't it shift how we prepare for Sundays? Doesn't it shift how, how we invest in small groups? Jesus is here. And He cares. That's what Revelation teaches us. How would it impact you if the banker come up as I, as I close? How would it impact you if as you came in this morning, not only were, I think, John and Lisa there greeting you, but Jesus Christ Himself was there. Welcome. Welcome to my church. King Grace Church. Now, Certainly we could apply this to any and all true churches, right? But welcome to my church. Good to see you this morning. How would that affect how you understood church coming in? And how would it affect you as you go out? He says, hey, so good to be with you this morning. I'm with you this week. I want to use you. Whatever he might say. How would that affect how you would think about things? I just want to ask you to prayerfully consider that that is a reality, though he's not going to physically greet you. He is here. And how we live, how we live amidst this tribulation and kingdom and patience is dramatically affected by the fact that He dwells with us. The Almighty Christ dwells with us. And that makes all the difference. So as we close and transition into communion as well, I just want you to take a minute to consider, is there anything I need to adjust in my life, in my church life, in light of these truths. In light of the truth that the glorious Christ dwells amidst the church. We live in this tribulation, kingdom, patience time period, but the glorious Christ is with us, dwells here in this church. Let me pray and we'll continue. Lord, we come to You and we ask You, Lord, to teach us these truths and to change our perspective. Strengthen us and encourage us. We thank You so much that You're for us we thank you that you rule over us as well. Speak to us and lead us, we pray. Amen.